Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7-365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears and open heart and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.gene. During today's program, you will hear AA mentioned multiple times. The individual expressing their thoughts and opinions do not reflect AA as a whole. Please enjoy. I, I can't get these memories out of my mind And some kind of madness has started to evolve I, I tried so hard to let you go but some kind of madness is swallowing me whole. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. You are listening to Authentic, where we get authentic. Yeah. Here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. Well, what do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. As for myself, I am in recovery from alcoholism. I am an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have an eating disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Really? The list could go on and on and on. Luckily for you, today's show is not about me. It is, however, about two people. First is my guest, Jim. Second is the one person whose life is going to most certainly be saved today by hearing Jim's testimony. Because if we help one person today, then we've done our job. That's really what this whole thing, this whole podcast is all about. And by the grace of my higher power, I have been blessed with people to come into the studio, get vulnerable, break stigma, and share their experience, strength, and hope. Before I introduce Jim, you know who I need to introduce, right? My dog, Marla. Marla! Come here, baby. Yeah, say hello to all of our listeners. Da, 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 da. Go, pack, go. Da, 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 da. Go, pack, go. Because when you said Wisconsin, you've said it all. Jim, your turn. Welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself in any way you see fit, sir. I am Jim R., and I am an alcoholic. Welcome, Jim. And I'm happy to be here. 
I'm happy that you're happy to be here. Jim, why are you here specifically? Uh, the program, the program, the program says that we need to connect with people. What program? The AA program, the program to recover from alcoholism, to work on it day by day. This is a great opportunity to connect with some folks like yourself. We've already won. We've met each other for the first time face-to-face. You put it well. Yeah, if we can give somebody some message somewhere that will help them in some way, shape, or form, that's why I'm sitting here. And, selfishly, I'm helping my own program by sitting here because I'm thinking about my disease and I'm working on it today. And that's the great thing about what we in the AA program call 12-step work, and that's called being of service. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Service. Service is what gives me purpose. Service to others is what comes around, taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, remember that problem you had earlier that you couldn't fucking figure out? Here's the answer. Because you got outside of yourself, you got out of your own way, and you got your answer. Jim, let's get right into the nitty gritty, shall we? Let's talk about your childhood. What was your childhood like growing up? So I was born in uh, La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. To say that drinking was part of the culture would be a gross uh, understatement. I had a great childhood. Things were, by all appearances, pretty normal. You know, grew up uh, in a home with uh, two parents that were together. I didn't know until later that things were a little shaky because my dad was uh, a drinker and an alcoholic. Brothers and sisters, you know, but I played ball, went to school, decent high achiever, et cetera, et cetera. But all around me, for sure, was drinking. Drinking was just part of what we are and what we were. And I'm an Irish boy, too, so that was always part of the stick, right? Hey, oh, Irish, you're a drinker. Yeah, you're just like your dad, just like all the other Irish people in town. Of course, that includes all the other cultures as well. And I would say that it was always a, maybe better, best way to put it, it was always sort of a, a destination that when you reached a certain age, you're going to start sneaking drinks one way, shape, or form. That was just seemed to be what we did, at least our group anyway. That started at 11 or 12 for me, taking taking some of my dad's beer, seeing some of the some of the liquor. Do you remember what your very first drink was? I think it was an old, um, I say old, the old brand of uh, red, white, and blue beer, I think, that my dad got. It was cheap gut rot beer mm. that he had. Yeah, it wasn't... Uh, but he also had uh, whiskey hanging around, too. That didn't get into that for a little bit until I realized the beer wasn't cutting it. And then we started to, to get our, some, you know, take some booze and things like that. But for some reason, I was tabbed as the guy that could get the fake ID. I must have looked older. I don't know what the deal was. So at 13 or 14, I had an ID, which said I was 18 years old, which... As I look back, I cannot believe that the store owners or the off-sale liquor store owners, well, they were just looking the other way. I mean, I would go sit with my dad in bars just like all the other kids on the bar stools. That's what we did. Nothing, didn't think anything of that at all. That wasn't a big deal. So that was the start of a, what I like to say, a Hall of Fame career in drinking. You know, 45 years of, of drinking, and that just was who I was, who we were. That was my childhood. And... I got through school fine, you know. I was on the debate team. I was on sports teams. 
decent enough grades, got into a decent college. All the time, what was a constant thread was drinking all, you know, whenever I, I could. I mean, it wasn't always falling down drunk. It was, but it was certainly looking for, looking forward to it every, every weekend. And what's a weekend starts on Thursday and ends on Sunday night. Maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe not in college. It drifted into Mondays and Tuesdays. And that's when the grades started to suffer a little bit. But I recovered. I got enough good grades and enough of a good test score. I made it to law school and I became a lawyer. Oh, geez, lawyers don't drink, do they? That was another part of my evolution. And there again, straightened up a little bit to get through law school, but not that much, but was able to function. I mean, it's a kind, it's, I'm always, I always laugh when I hear about people say it's, you're a functioning alcoholic. What the heck does that mean, a functioning alcoholic? That means that you're still living and breathing. Oh, geez. It is just, uh, it's crazy, but you can do a lot of stuff hungover, and you think you're doing it 100%. You look back and go, you you weren't. Hey, did I go to court drunk? No. Did I represent uh, people with while well, I was drinking? No. I certainly partied. And then once we had kids, there again, hey, okay, that part of my life's got to dial back a little bit. I can control it now. And let's cut back a little bit. Got the young kids, right? That didn't last long. At that point, I did not know I had the disease. And uh, you call it a disease. Do you believe it to be that there is this argument back and forth that goes on? You know, generally speaking, there are some folks that actually identify it, call it a disease. And there are some people that call it. You just have a fucking problem. Why do you say disease? First of all, disease and problem are the same thing in my mind. That'd be the first observation. But I think it's a disease in the sense that it just both a a physical and a mental obsession with alcohol as part of your life. And, you know, I remember going, when I ended up going to treatment, this is a few decades later, and we'll get to that part of the story. I said, I just want to know what my triggers are. He goes, well, since you started drinking that many years ago, did you drink when you were happy to make yourself feel better? The answer is yes. Did you drink when you were anxious and frustrated and worried about life? Yes. And did you drink because there was nothing else to do and you were isolated and bored? Yes. Okay. There's your triggers. Let's stop talking about the effing triggers right now. Let's get to let's get to the bottom of how you can get on top of this thing. That to me is the disease. That's why I call it a disease because it's just like it's just so ingrained in your mind and some folks they can turn it off. They can have that self-willpower. Some can't. I've accepted the fact that I had it for all these years, and I just never knew that I did. I just figured it was part of me. It was just part of it was just part of my skin, part of my personal ethos, if you will, to be a drinker. I was the party guy, first guy at the at the party, last guy to leave. That's what I did. Do you think I was funnier when I when I drank? I was more bombastic. The stories people would tell the next day at the hangover, Bloody Marys, you know, all of that was just part of the culture. And it was just eating away at my soul and my body as we were going along. So, Do you think you didn't recognize it as a problem in the moment because there weren't any consequences? What, what was going on there that you don't? Was it denial? I, I say that I got a DWI at 47, and that was the first time I ever drank over the limit. That's a joke, Nick. That's a joke. A thousands and thousands of times. So, no, I never got it until 47. And at 47, wow, all the appearances are now gone. Everyone knows I got a DWI. 
His drinking's come to a head. This should snap him back into reality, right? And it did for a little while. Six, eight, ten months. Liquor left the house. Could have beer. Could have liquor when we went out, out, but not at home. So you had specific rules. There was rules for put in place. Yes, my wife and I decided we had rules in place, and that, you know, modified it a bit. Didn't take long for it to come back more than ever. And at that point, the kids were now getting older, on their own, heading out. Job was in a decent spot. It had a successful legal career and then a business career. And the business career was kind of, I won't say on coast, but certainly, you know, I'd reached a certain level. I probably wasn't going to go too much further, and it was going well. A lot of business travel that I could direct, and there was plenty of drinking and entertaining on that deal. And I just sunk right back into it. So from 50 to age 50 to 55, it was just, it just got worse and worse and worse. We're now, now it's like, those triggers I talked about, most days of the week, if I had any of those triggers, I just went right to the bottle. There was no problem at all to do that. So I spent many weeks, most days, having alcohol. I finally got another DWI at 57. So obviously whatever happened at 47 didn't snap me into reality all that much. That's when I started peeling off the layers and I said, hmm. Somebody said, you got to go to treatment. You got to do something here. And I said, okay, all right, yeah, maybe there's something here. But it was half-assed, and the disease had already, the the, the obsession had gotten to a point where it was like, you know, I'm not really sure I want to stop. I've had a lot of fun doing this over the years, I thought, in my mind. I tried it, failed. I tried some other things, failed. And eventually decided I was going to leave work. Maybe that was going to help. Maybe with a little nudge, I left work and started looking for something that was a little less strenuous, a little less, a little more relaxed, heading into the retirement years. And it just continued to get worse and worse until finally it was to a point where I couldn't, you know, every day I woke up, that's what I was thinking, when's the first opportunity to get some alcohol? So you talk about your Hall of Fame career, that's a lot of years, right? And I've thought to myself... What if I had not made that decision to finally reach the bottom and go to inpatient treatment at, at Hazelden? And finally reach the bottom. What do you mean by that, reach the bottom? I drank, I just drinking so much every day. I mean, I, I remember just, I mean, there, there wasn't even a, my wife had kind of given up. She's tried everything to try to tell you to stop drinking. You, you know you're killing your yourself with your liver. You know, liver how long to... how long would you say your wife had been addressing your drinking? Oh, a lot of years. A lot, meaning how long? Well, decades. Yeah, yeah. She was concerned for decades. In what way would worse. she? You know, well, she just say you gotta. Why are you getting so drunk? And why are you having so much? And your answer? Well. Some t- a lot of a lot of I'm sorry's. I'll do better next time. And as time went on, it was kind of like, hey, this is who I am. This is kind of what I'm all about. So yeah, I'll try to curtail it as best I can. But this is I, I'm going to drink. This is what I do. So you know, and, there, and then I'd always kind of try to find some other examples around to say, hey, look at all these other guys. They do the same stuff too. So I'm not any different than them. Well, I suppose it's easy to. <clears throat> make that identification as this is who I am. I am a drinker because you started drinking at the age 11, 12. 
and you didn't quit until you were 57? Yeah, late 58 or 9, I get 50, 58, I guess. So that's over... Over 40 years. Over 40. That's yeah. almost 50 years of drinking. No wonder you thought that's who you were. It was totally ingrained. Totally ingrained in my in the, in every part of my body. Every celebration we did, every event, always a couple beforehand, drinking at it, what to drink, how much to drink. We put on parties because then I could be in charge of going to get the beer or the wine or, you know, if it was alcohol. Tried in the later years not to drink alcohol, but that I went back to that as well because that was the easiest way to get drunk. I've tried to explain to some people what it's like to be an alcoholic in Wisconsin or just to witness the drinking culture because it is unlike anywhere else, at least in the United States, that I've seen, I've been told of. They're like, holy shit, you guys fucking party. Like, I've seen some drinking, but this is on a whole nother level. How would you describe the drinking culture in Wisconsin? Well, I'd, I'd agree with that. It, it was almost, Nick, it was almost like a badge of, I mean, you kind of got your, you got your carrying card, right? You're a, you're a Wisconsin, you're a guy. You drink, you party. I'd say it happens in Minnesota, too. I mean, you know, I've been to plenty of hockey tournaments with my son. The dads would drink the whole weekend, drink into the middle of the night, get up, go to a hockey game hungover, watch your kid play, and then, you know, have them go off and do something with the rest of the team, and you go find a bar and shoot pool. And then, of course, there was some party at night with the, all the families together. And <laughs> the Wisconsin thing is, it is true. I mean, it is sort of just... I was thinking about that when I was, you know, because this is a little more of a conversation than the uh, than the classic experience, strength, and, and hope story. Not the classic, but, I mean, sort of the typical deal. And I was thinking, it just, it was just me. It was just us. It was what we did. It was sort of the, it was just expected. You know, Packer games, and uh, uh, I mean, my second DWI was the result of watching a Packer game and starting at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning drinking all the way through it, and then leaving to go to the hardware store and getting hit by another car. And then, you know, getting picked up uh, with, or getting cited for a DWI. Well, I didn't think anything of that. And drinking and driving, no problems whatsoever. That was sort of like, in Wisconsin, that's like, you know, there's lots of stories of those, too, where the cops will say, well, we'll get you home. We'll figure out a way to get you home type thing, you know. So it was, there was an acceptance, too. By authorities, if you will. Well, the kids in the bars at young ages. I think it, I don't know if it's still legal there. It used to be legal. You could have your kid in a bar. Your kid could drink with you in a bar under 18. As long as you're there. As long as you're there. And so that, there was lots of kids, 16, 17, they'd go with their dads and they would be drinking too, playing pool and having beer. So you think about that. That's a pretty screwed up, pretty screwed up dynamic. Going through your drinking career, what was your opinion of people that didn't drink? What did you think of people that didn't drink? As I sit here today, Nick, I'm not sure I knew that many people who didn't drink. <laughs> so what do I think of people that didn't drink? I just said, well, whatever. I can't even think of settings where we didn't hang around with people that didn't drink. As I sit here today, that's crazy to think about it like that. I didn't even, that's a great, great question. Because I'm like, no, what? Let's, who, let's, who, would those, who would those people be? Let's, <laughs> I have no idea. Do those people those. exist? <laughs> what are the, those? Must be aliens. They're invading from Mars. They must be from Utah or something. They must be the, Mor <laughs> they must be, they must be the Mormons. I have no idea. No, the Mormons I, I, are great people, Jim. I'm just kidding. I have to reflect on that. They are say. weird because they don't drink, though. <laughs> 
Like, I don't have to reflect. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't think of any church groups. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, confirmations, Friday night fundraising, smelt fries. Oh, yeah. It was everywhere. What would you say to me? Let's do a little exercise. Let's say we're at a ball game, you and I. You order a beer from the guy. Oh, beer here. Yeah, grab a beer. And you look over to me, and you're like, what do you have? And I say, nothing. I'm not drinking. What would you say back to me while you were in the thick of your alcoholism? Well, as long as I was getting my beer and getting drunk, it didn't really matter. That's what I'd say. You'd be like, oh, fuck you. Okay. Whatever. Well, I wouldn't say, oh, fuck you. I'd just say, great. Let's keep talking about sports because I'm really getting loquacious. I'm, I'm unbelievable. I can talk about it. I'm going to be the great fan here and everything. You're doing what you're doing. By the way, you're going to get yourself a Coke and a hot dog. Would you mind getting me a couple more <laughs> beers? And here's some money for it. And tell you what, I'll buy your Coke and your hot dog for you too. So, no, I didn't. that didn't bother me. That's interesting because I know, at least for me, I engaged in this all the time. And I think a lot of it has to do with what I did for work, working in the bar scene, managing bars and things of that nature. It was always, no, nah, I'm not drinking. No, nah, I'm not drinking tonight. Come on. You can have one. You can have one. Come on. Just do a shot and then you'll be fine. Like, no big deal. And I never, ever thought that maybe at one point I was doing that to a person that was an alcoholic in recovery and what that was doing to them internally. Because they could see it. Someone that's in recovery can see the alcoholism in another alcoholic. It's real easy to spot them. But if you try and tell an active drinker that he's an alcoholic, it doesn't go so well all the time. It rarely goes well. Unless somebody's hit their bottom like you talked about. I remember pushing drinking on people like it was needing to breathe. It's like, you need this alcohol. Like, come on, come on, come on. It was incessant. Yeah. It was incessant. I want to know if your kids ever said anything about your drinking while they were still in the house. Was there ever a time when any of your kids say, Dad, I think you've had enough, or Dad, are you okay? Anything like that? Not the first question. The second one probably is, are you okay? Yeah, I think. And your response? Fine. Fine. Tired, make up an excuse, whatever the case may be. I'm okay. And what did you feel on the inside? At the time? Mm Mm-hmm. As an alcoholic, hey, I'm providing for you. I'm there. I'm coaching. <laughs> Went to practice as coaching after having a few on the way home from you know for happy hour before we got to coaching. By the way, so was I there? There is a funny term because it's really not the case. I wasn't always there. On paper, you're showing up. Yeah. Oh yeah. But underneath the surface, if you dig in a few pages deep, oh no, there's something going on there. Yep. There are, sure. there are so many people that talk about some sort of underlying thing that they have as to why they started drinking. Not just because, for me, growing up in Wisconsin, yes, I drank because that's what we did. Like, that was the thing every fucking weekend, all through high school, even in middle school. It's like, that is what we do. Although, I did notice certain things dissipated when I drank. Especially when I had that first sip, I could finally relax. I had all these internal things going on. I hated myself. I really didn't like myself. I thought I was fat. I thought I was stupid. I didn't think anybody liked me. Was there anything like that going on for you? I would say that an intense desire to have people like me and and consider me to be this bigger-than-life person 
Why do you think and, that is? And I thought alcohol helped me do that. Why did you have that intense desire to have people like you, Jim? Because you're a pretty likable guy. I don't know. I wish I could get inside my crazy brain to figure that one out. I don't know. Ego run amok. Ego run amok, I think. It's just like, get the next job. And I think back to my work career. Yeah, I worked hard. I did a good job. Were there some folks that I kicked off the mountain on the way up the mountain? Probably. Yes. Not probably. Yes. Maybe not directly. Not a shot in the bag. Didn't lie about them, but made sure I positioned myself in a way to do that. And that's ego and self-centeredness, which now I see. You know, when I got going in treatment... What does AA mean again? I have this vague sort of that people go to these meetings and know anything about it. I didn't do it at 47 with the first year, that's for sure. No, that was I just that was the bright light. That stopped everything. Okay, we're done with that. That's over. That chapter's over. Well, that, that was silly. But then when I started getting into it at 57, 58, and did, did some outpatient, which stuck a little bit, but not enough, and I realized there's some defects going on here. There's some different things going on in my head that is causing me to do this, right? And to to work on this is critical to the program, but it just didn't sink in and get it until I started going, wow. I wrote down on a note here when we were talking, it's never too late. I thought in my early 50s it was too late. I did. I thought it was was too late. This is who I am. I'm a drinker. I won't drink and drive anymore because that gets me into trouble, but I can find lots of other ways to do it, get cabs, Get a taxi to the airport so that way I can drink, you know, on, on the plane on the way back home and then get the tax, you know, whatever. Even crossed my mind a few times when I'm getting really drunk. Yeah, my wife's telling me my health's going to pot. If I go early, I've had a good run. I've raised the kids. I've made decent money. We got a nice house. Everything's good. And that's a, that's screwed up thinking, really. <laughs> now I realize that's screwed up thinking because it's never too late. If I break my life in, up into thirds, sort of that... 10 through 30, and then the 30 through 55, 60, just ballparking it. I'm in this next third of my life, the last third of my life. I have a renaissance. I have a renaissance of spirit, and I owe it to the program. I owe it to the steps. I owe it to the connectivity. I mean, once I started digging in and saying, wow, this can happen to me, this works, I'm embracing it. Why am I sitting here today? I enjoy people in recovery. I enjoy giving and I enjoy receiving from recovery. I have a renaissance of spirit. I, I was only using 50 or 60% of gym. Most of the time, that was pretty good to the outside world. They're like, he's stand-up citizen, good guy, volunteer, he's on the church board, he's at Rotary, he's doing all this kind of shit. But inside, you couldn't stop drinking. I know it. I couldn't stop. I put up enough stuff. It's almost like I did all that stuff, too. It was almost like a justification. Like, as long as I do all these things... Then I can drink how and however long as I want. Exactly. Ex- that's exactly right. You've earned it, Jim. Yep. You can get smashed tonight because you've shown up for your kids' hockey tournament. You've taken your kids there. You've taken your wife there. You still have a job. You provide for the family. We've gone to Europe. We've done this. We've done that. Uh, you know, whatever. We're yeah. good. We're good. Totally, Jim. We're good. Totally. Again, yeah. it's those things on paper. It's not real. No. It's no. not It's not real. And it never is. It's this outside looking in. That's what a lot of alcoholics want to put out there. Everything is fine. Mm-hmm. This excessive need to show everyone that it's fine. Because if they knew what was going on underneath, if they knew what I was doing every night, if they knew what I was doing every morning... Then they would think completely different of me. They would look down on me. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, and sharing in my early recovery was a challenge for that regard. The counselors and fellow uh, AA folks would say, you share when you're comfortable sharing. And I took that to heart. I've got to measure this out. That, that's gone now. That is gone. I mean, it's, I view sharing as an opportunity to make myself vulnerable and open myself up to someone who's got a problem. Might not even be an alcohol problem. See, I did it. It's never too late. It's never too late to change. A lot of people at my age, I hang out with people 55, 60, 65 a lot. That's a lot of my friends, right? I hang out with younger people, too. I'm hanging out with you today. Jim, I'm 74 years old. That's amazing how the recovery is really. I know. I'm like (laughs) Benjamin Button. I get like five years younger every year. Marla, do you know what? Marla doesn't know that. Um, She's in the reverse aging process. She's in the reverse aging process. But uh, it's never too late. People say, well, this is the way we always did it. Why? Would you please tell me why? You can change. Before, I change. Before you got to the it's never too late mentality, what did the last year of your drinking career look like? How often were you drinking? What were your relationships like? What did that last year look like for you? Pretty much every day. Drinking to get drunk every day? Well, some days I try to measure it a little bit. Other days, just couldn't, you know, I'd find myself not remembering that I had X amount and went X plus whatever. So pretty much every day. With the job thing sort of on the wane, it was kind of like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do here with this next stage and there's my work stage and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, well, what, what the hell? I might as well just, I can look for a job drinking. That's not a problem. You might as well just lean into this lifestyle that, You've always wanted to completely immerse yourself well, in. Well, that's a good way to put it. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's Yeah, it's just kind of like, well, the obligations are starting to come down as well, right? Because financially we're doing okay. Kids are out of the house. I mean, leaving my work was a, it was a decision I made because I was getting sick and tired of working the big full-time 60-hour high-pressure job. So that was an easy one because the guy goes, well, you're fine. You know, if you, it would help for you to have a part, you know, some other gig, but you can take your time looking for that. Yeah. So that was lean-in time. It was also, as I've learned about the, the, the disease, it was also the, the progression of it, which I now I fully understand having gone through the treatment and learning about it that just got worse and worse and worse because that's what the disease does. It gets worse and worse and worse. So how bad did it get then? What did what did your last drunk look like? Was it this big blowout? I'm going to go to treatment tomorrow. No, I'm going to get as drunk as humanly possible. Typical day. I had spent the morning, middle of the, middle of the week in May, uh, putting in some applications, looking for some jobs, kind of thinking about the work thing, made a couple phone calls to some friends. But I wasn't seeing friends as much either in that last year. I think now I see that there were some people distancing themselves from me a bit as well. Not overtly. I mean, people still, I still hung out with people and stuff, but there was a little, you know, there was an acknowledgement there, I think. One of those days, it was kind of like mid to late morning and then had said, well, don't have much going the rest of the day. I've kind of done whatever I can do job-wise, so I'll just have some drinks. And I couldn't control it that day, and I kind of slipped and fell in the kitchen, and I couldn't get back up without kind of stumbling back over to the living room. And I remember just looking up at the ceiling and... uh, Wishing you had a life alert? No, I'm looking at that recess light, and every time I see a recess light, it takes me back to that moment when I'm looking at that recess light going, you know, I don't think I could really get up. 
at this point. So I'm just going to kind of sleep here, fall asleep. Lori comes back at 3. Things are going to, you know, hopefully I can kind of fake, lie and fake and do something about it. And she just walked in and sat down, let, kept her coat on her purse and, that, and looked at me. And I said, I need relief. I said, I need relief. It just snapped. It just snapped right at that moment. Two days later, I was in Hazelden. I haven't drunk since. What did your wife say to you? You got to call Hazelden. I'm going to call your sponsor right now. Remember now, I've been half-assing the program. Mm-hmm. I already had a sponsor. Mm-hmm. I've gone to outpatient. I was going to meetings. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm using air quotes. I was physically going. Sometimes I wouldn't go, or sometimes I'd even go if it was at 7 o'clock. So that resistance to diving all the way into your program of Alcoholics Anonymous, working the 12 steps, going back and forth, dipping your toes in, that lasted for what, a decade? No. No, that was about a year and a half. A year and a half. Funny enough, that's how long you've been sober. Is that correct? That's right. And a lot of people in the program talk about their sobriety date, the day after they had their last drink. That is their first day of sobriety. What is your sobriety date? Do you remember? May 29th. May 29th. I think that's right. May 29th, 2019. Yeah, 18 months as of yesterday. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. I got to tell you, it seems even longer than that. Mm. The quality of my recovery has been, I can only thank God for it, really. I can only thank some other higher power because I did everything they said, right, to start off with. And now I still do everything that they say. And I have a rigorous program in that regard. So, Jim, I'm going to pause you right there. Absolutely. Because we are working into the strength portion of the program. We are going to take a little natural break there. Thank you so much for the segue. We will be right back. After Jim's first musical pick, time to talk about some strength, Jim Smash. Welp, that's it for part one of Jim R. Stay tuned next week for part two when Jim will share his strength and his hope as it pertains to his recovery from a lifelong battle with alcoholism. As always here on Authentic and Keeping Authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you heard on today's program. To lead us off, you always hear Mad Madness by Muse. And to take us off into the night sky. Days Like This by Van Morrison. Remember, be good to yourselves and each other. Well, it's not always raining. There'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. When everything falls into place, like the flick of a switch Oh, my mama told me There'll be days like this One, you don't need to worry There'll be days like this When no one's in a hurry There'll be days like this When all the parts of the puzzle Start to look like they should Then I must remember it 
There'll be days like this 